Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. This morning, we're going to conclude our look at uh, Romans 5, 12 through 21. And this will actually be the last sermon in the series that we began on the first Sunday of the year, looking at uh, the first five chapters of the book of Romans. We'll pick up in chapter 6 after this and and keep going through Romans. But uh, we've reached a kind of uh, stopping point where it's helpful to pause and reflect on the ground that we've covered. They say, don't miss the forest for the trees, which means don't focus so much on the details that you miss the big picture. Well, the forest in this case is our passage, Romans 5, 12 through 21. And we've been strolling through that forest the last few weeks, looking at the trees. And the trees in this case are the different parts of that passage, that discourse, as Paul uh, makes his case, he states it in a complicated way. And we've taken time to really appreciate the flow of that argument. But we're just going to go through the passage quickly and, and help us see the different parts that make up the whole. So we start in verse 12, where Paul writes, Therefore, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, he states the first part of his analogy in verse 12. He's going to make a comparison between the one man, Adam, and the one man, Jesus Christ. But famously, he doesn't finish. He begins, but he doesn't finish, so that at the end of verse 12, we have that long dash, and then he goes into a digression. So that's the analogy stated, but incompletely. And then he goes into this digression because he's talked about the entry of sin into the world through death. And before he goes forward anymore, he wants to say more about that. So starting in verse 13, then in verse 13 and 14, we get this digression on sin and death. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law yet. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Already, he's touched on some pretty big doctrine. We're getting hints here of the idea of original sin, the the sin that leads to death, the sin of Adam that leads to death for all humanity. We get that. We also have a statement here at the end of verse 14 about Adam as a type or foreshadowing of Christ who was to come. As we continue, you would expect Paul now to go back to the analogy. He's digressed a little bit, but now it's time to go back and finish the thought. That's not what he does. Instead, he qualifies his analogy again before finishing it. So the qualification has to do with the free gift and the trespass and the difference between the two. So he's telling us Adam is like Christ, but he wants us to understand there's actually a huge difference between the work of Christ and the work of Adam. And so we get that qualification starting in verse 15, going through verse 17, which is what we looked at last Sunday. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more 
have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And a free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the end of the qualification. Now he goes back and states the analogy fully. Now he'll tell us about Adam and Christ and how they relate. He does that in verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And there's the analogy fully stated. In the same way that Adam, acting on behalf of his people in his fall, we all fell. His sin brought death upon us all. In that same way, Jesus, acting as the head of his own people, bringing in another key doctrine, the idea of federal headship, representation. Jesus, representing his people through his act of righteousness, brings life to us all. And now, in verses 20 and 21, he goes back to the digression on sin and law and has a final word to say about that. So in 20 and 21, he wraps things up. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he's done. That's the whole passage. We've looked at the analogy, the digressions, the qualifications. And now, as we've covered it all, we look back upon it. The question is, what does it all mean? What is it all pointing to? We've looked at the details. We've seen the doctrine that that arises out of those details. We've seen the depravity of humanity. We've seen original sin. We've seen Adam as a type of Christ. We've seen the federal headship of Adam and Christ. We've seen the imputation of Adam's sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But all of these are parts of a whole. And the question is, what is the whole saying? What is the overall meaning? What is the overall goal of what Paul is saying? Where does it point And in this case, that's a good question because it's not just a question of what is the overall goal of the passage. Because Paul is here talking about the gospel. He's talking about the history of human redemption from Adam to Christ. So when we ask what is the goal of the passage, we're also asking what is the goal of the history? What did all of that redemptive history point towards? Where is it going? Where is it leading? What is its telos? What is its purpose? If we were just asking about the passage, if we were just looking for a way to summarize the main point of the passage, I think verse 19 would be a good summary that you could use. Verse 19 is where he's fully stated 
the comparison between Adam and Christ, and he's kind of summing it all up. He says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. That's a great summary because what Paul wants to do here is compare the work we don't understand to the work that we do. He's saying to his original audience in the same way that you already know that Adam's sin was imputed to his people. If you're curious how this justification by faith thing works, it works like that. That you're justified by faith and, and Christ's righteousness is imputed to you. It's credited to you even though you didn't earn it. So it's a great analogy for explaining the, the newness of that gospel, that Christ's righteousness can be ours. But if you're asking about the bigger question of the purpose of, of redemptive history, if you're looking for words that summarize that, give you a way of understanding the, the history of God's work in humanity over time, then I think the end of verse 20 and verse 21 really give you that. That's where Paul writes, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that grace also might reign. An aspiration, a hope, that just as death has reigned and we see the power of death all around us, a hope that grace might reign in the same way, that the reign of grace would overcome the reign of death, that the power of grace would topple the power of death. The whole goal of redemptive history is that grace might reign, that grace might reign. And even when we could not name it, the race of humanity has always hoped that grace might reign. Even when we didn't know how to describe that hope, how to name it, we always hoped that it would be the case. We've always longed for that kind of restoration. It's embedded in our stories. I've always been fascinated by uh, old myths and, and stories, tales. For a long time, I was obsessed with, with King Arthur and all of the various myths surrounding King Arthur. Uh, the part that I always thought was the weirdest was the idea of, of King Arthur's return. If you're familiar with this, but, but so the legend goes, King Arthur, he, he didn't die in that famous final battle against Mordred, like his body is whisked away to the Isle of Avalon. And the, the idea is one day he will return and deliver the kingdom. One day he will return and restore the kingdom. I don't know how seriously people took that. I'm not sure if, you know, people during the, the London Blitz were saying, this would be a good time, King Arthur, to come back and deliver us from the Fuhrer. My guess is not a lot of people put a lot of trust in that, but, but just the idea of it is really interesting. In, in history, and not just in myth, this kind of thing crops up. I'm also obsessed with Byzantine history and the fall of Constantinople. So the, the last emperor of Constantinople, Constantine the 11th. So the story goes, when the Turks, the Ottomans, seized the city and, and captured the city and killed the emperor, they didn't actually kill him because at the last moment, angels came 
and carried him away. They carried him away to an undisclosed location. According to one story, they turned him into a statue so that the Turks wouldn't realize it, so that he could come back later and restore the empire. You're like, "Mm, probably not. But there is a statue in Greece somewhere that that represents him and, and alludes to this idea that one day Constantine will return and he will restore the kingdom. If you've read The Lord of the Rings, you know that Tolkien really draws on this idea that that recurs in literature and in history of of the return of a king. So much power in that idea that he rings out having the true king return in order to restore the kingdom. I think all these stories reflect a kind of ancient intuition, an intuition that we've always had, that evil plagues the land. And that that evil can be traced back to the fact that that the ruler of the land is a false king, a wrong ruler, one who rules by force, an illegitimate ruler. And that the solution to the evil that plagues the land would be the restoration of the true king, the one who rules not by power, but the one who rules by right. With the restoration of the true king the kingdom itself, the land itself, would be restored. Even though we don't have the same ideas about the right of kings, you know, people don't rule by right by virtue of their birth anymore. We understand political power is being vested in the people. And yet, we still have this idea, this instinct that suggests to us that the way that you change the evil that plagues the land is to replace illegitimate rulers with legitimate ones. That if you change the ruler, you restore the regime. And we told ourselves for a generation during the Cold War that if you wiped away the the communist oligarchy, that freedom would reign in Eastern Europe and everything would be restored. We told ourselves during the Iraq War that if we could topple Saddam Hussein, then democracy would reign in the region and everything would be restored. And we tell ourselves every election cycle, we could just elect the person whose views best reflect our own views, then freedom would reign and the nation would be restored. Of course, none of these dreams of restoration are ever fully realized. At a certain point, you get what you want and you realize things haven't changed the way that you thought they would, that the problems haven't gone away, that evil still reigns in the land. But despite the fact that those hopes are never fully realized, that those kingdoms are never fully restored with a change of ruler, that shouldn't lead us to doubt that underlying instinct. I think there's something right about it. It's just that none of these rulers has the power or the right to restore what is broken. Still, I think that in every unsuccessful restoration, every time those hopes go unrealized or only partially realized, you have an anticipation of a real restoration that is to come, the restoration of all things by Christ the King. Even in those false hopes, we have something in us pointing us, reminding us that there is a true king to hope for. There's a true restoration that is to come 
It is the restoration of Christ. It is the reign of grace. The fact that we put trust in these lesser restorations, in these lesser kings' functions, in the same way that the idol to the unknown God does at Mars Hill. Paul, when he goes to Mars Hill, seeing an idol to the unknown God, commends it to the people. In all things, I see you're very religious. You have an idol to the unknown God, and I've come to proclaim him to you. He finds common ground there. It's, It's proximate. He doesn't literally mean this is a good thing that you have amongst all your other idols, an idol of the unknown God, and hey, let's let's call him Yahweh and everything will be fine. That's not what he's getting at. What he's saying is, in a sense, like your hearts know more than your philosophy does. Your hearts have taught you better than your religion has. You know, you have an instinct. You have a pull that suggests to you that there is something more. There is a God yet to be worshipped who you cannot name. I think this is the same. There's a king coming whose reign will restore all things. Even when we cannot name him, we long for him. That's good as far as it goes. Hope. Hope in a world yet to be restored. But I understand that sometimes it's difficult when you look at the reign of death all around us, when you see the grip of sin and the power of sin, to confront every evil reality and to tell yourself, well, one day all will be made new. One day all will be restored. And you think to yourself, is that enough? Is that enough? That, that not yet, that eschatological hope. What about now? What about now? Well, even if the world is not yet restored, what Paul is saying to us is, our hearts are. Even if the world is not yet restored, our hearts are. Christ, by the power of the Spirit, is already at work, ruling and reigning now, already in our hearts. There's a restoration it's always puzzled me. It's the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660. You know your English history. Uh, Charles I was famously beheaded, and there was a period of time when there was no king in England. There was eventually a Lord Protector, Oliver Cromwell. He's the guy who famously, when it came to painting his portrait, insisted that he be represented warts and all. As a result, his portrait is not especially flattering, but it is accurate. And there was a kind of virtue in that sentiment. He was an interesting guy. At one point, Cromwell was offered the crown of England because it's difficult for people who've always been ruled by a king to be ruled by any other institution. It just seems like you need a king. But he refused that crown. Eventually, he died. In fact, not long after that, he died. He left behind a son who was ineffectual and uh, eventually... and. Uh, quick order, the people who had driven out their king invited his son to come back and be their king. And Charles II came in 1660, and they call that the restoration of the monarchy. Charles II, uh, we call him the Merry Monarch. 
And the restoration of the monarchy restored the kingdom. People had great hope of all that would happen. Uh, what happened was there was a big fire in London that destroyed the city. There was a war with the Dutch, and there was a lot of religious persecution as well. As a consequence of that, a particular famous hero of the faith, John Bunyan, found himself in jail, uh, imprisoned during this period of restoration for the terrible crime of preaching without a license. You can sympathize probably with the magistrates. We've all heard sermons that ought to have resulted in the pastor going to jail. Not because he wasn't licensed, though, but the regulations being what they were, Bunyan found himself in jail in a six-month sentence. All he had to do in order to be released was agree not to preach any longer. As a result, he was imprisoned for years, and he began to write. And his most famous work, of course, is Pilgrim's Progress, which is an allegory of the Christian life from regeneration through the journey of sanctification and finally over the river and into glory. But before that, Bunyan in prison wrote his spiritual autobiography, which he revised several times over the years, expanding, adding more to it in subsequent editions. The title of that book of Bunyan's is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. The Chief of Sinners part, he's borrowing from the Apostle Paul's description of himself in 1 Timothy 1.15. But the first part, Grace Abounding, that comes from our text. That comes from Romans 5.20, Grace Abounding. I don't know about you, but if I found myself tomorrow locked up in jail for preaching without a license and turned my pen to writing, I'd probably write like letters about how unjust my imprisonment was, maybe try to organize a campaign to change the system so that things like this wouldn't happen anymore. I would feel justified because I was, you know, improperly imprisoned, and all my efforts would go into exonerating myself, and I suspect the same would be true for any one of you. But that's not what Bunyan does. Interestingly, what he writes about while he's in prison is not the justness of his cause. He actually writes an autobiography in which he examines his own sin and works through the process of his own salvation. Bunyan had a hope that grace might reign, not just out in the world, a hope that grace might reign within him. And that was the story of his life. It was an epic struggle. It was a battle. It was harrowing. But it was the battle for his soul. The battle for his soul, that grace might reign in his soul, was more important to him than that grace might reign in the kingdom. Not that he didn't care about that, but where his focus was, was that grace might reign in his heart. We long for restoration, but a lot of us, when we long for it, we long for restoration out there. Christ says, I make all things new, and we say, good, make all things new, and start with that. Start over there. 
we have a good pious sounding way of talking about this. Uh, it's distinguishing between systematic problems and, and personal problems, individual problems, right? You've really got to deal with the systematic stuff. Just changing the personal stuff won't make a difference. The Christian way, though, is different. Christian says, make all things new and start with me. Not that Christ doesn't promise systemic change. When you make all things new, you make all things new. The individuals and the systems, like the the subjects and the regimes. But the emphasis is on the personal. The emphasis is on the redemption of people, the restoration of people, of souls, of hearts. The gospel promises restoration of the world, which is largely, though not entirely, part of that not yet, that eschatological hope. Right? We oftentimes seek to take that power into our own hands to fix the world, to make the world better. It's possible to improve things. It's possible to do that, but only to a point. We implement our great solutions And then we discover the problems have only changed, not disappeared. And yet that kind of restoration is the kind that resonates for us now. Restoration resonates, but not yet frustrates us. Future restoration frustrates us, which is why we're always trying to make it happen now. The gospel promises restoration of another kind, restoration of the self freedom from sin, and a life of spirit-led sanctification. The restoration of the kingdom resonates, but the restoration of the self really doesn't. It's the kind of restoration we no longer feel much need for. Individual people are good as they are. The problem is that the system is broken. It's not really a problem for just today, though. You remember Augustine's prayer for purity? He prays, Lord, make me pure, but not yet. Make me pure, but not yet. Restore me, but not yet. Showing that when it comes to personal restoration, personal change, sanctification, holiness, we're very happy for that kind of restoration to be not yet. Because there's something beautiful about the world remade. But about myself remade, that just seems hard. And so we long for the beautiful restoration, and we tell ourselves we can have it without the hard one. But Christ says, no, I start with the hard things. I make all things new from the inside out. G.K. Chesterton once said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. And I think that's very true for the life of the Christian that we are called to. It is hard. It involves self-sacrifice. It involves the transformation of the soul. To be a person restored in a world that isn't, doesn't bring you more comfort in this life. In many ways, it makes it harder. Being able to see the evil in the world for what it is doesn't make the evil go away. 
it makes it more challenging, more difficult to have to face it. It would be more pleasant to be able to be in denial. To have our eyes open to that reality is hard because it is difficult. It is often not tried. And what Paul calls us to do is to try. To follow after Christ. To be sanctified. To follow after his example of holiness. To long for the restoration of all things. Ourselves included. God restores the broken world, but he restores it by building us up. In Ephesians 1, when Paul talks about the meaning or the goal of redemptive history, he says the same thing that he says here in Romans 5, but he says it in slightly different words. This is Ephesians 1, starting in verse 18. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In other words, Christ's kingship, the reign of grace, is being built up through the church. The metaphor in Ephesians 1 is a body. A body is being built up, the body of Christ. But there's another metaphor. And the next chapter that Paul uses, another metaphor that's significant, not the body, but the house. In Ephesians 2, starting in verse 19, he says, You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Last time when we talked about sanctification, the metaphor that we used was the garden. And we looked at the idea of all human work as a kind of cultivation, like Adam and Eve in the garden, giving form to the raw material of creation. Each of us has a life that is a garden that needs to be cultivated, the reality is we look and we see, wow, there's a lot of weeds. There are parts of my life that are no-mow areas, and the weeds just grow up. Different analogy now. Not the building of a garden, the cultivating of a garden, but the building of a house. That's what God is doing. That's why it works the way it works. In order to get to that not-yet In order to get to that future hope, the way that God is getting there is piece by piece, brick by brick, soul by soul, building a house. And it is through that building work that he restores what is broken. As we said many times before, the way God exercises power is different from us 
We see power as just something that lets you overrun people and, and, and run roughshod over them and exploit them. But power, dominion, dominion that is given to Adam and Eve in the garden, that's a dominion to build. It's a dominion to make things. And that's true here as well. God is making something for the restoration of all things. He is making something for the salvation of the world. What is he making? He's making his church a dwelling place for himself. What is he making it of? He is making it of us. That's the significance of the now. What's happening now, as hard as it is, as difficult as it is to be shaped and formed and molded over time, to be set into that wall, to create that structure, that place is God's dwelling place. And we are pieces within it. We are the trees, as it were, in the forest that God is planting. Our future hope is all things new, but our present hope is brick by brick by brick. I long, I long for and hope that grace might reign in the world to come, that every promise God has made, that all of those great end times eschatological promises will be fulfilled, the sooner the better. But there is another hope that Paul nurtures within us. It is a hope that grace might reign in the church. And even more basic than that, a hope that grace, by the power of the Spirit, through the blood of Christ, might reign in us, each and every one of us. That is the hope that this passage points us to, and that is the hope that I commend to you, that grace might reign in you. Don't worry about out there. Don't worry about the future, but that grace might reign in you, that you might be restored. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.